Hello, STEM Nation. Jeff here, and welcome to episode number 19 of STEM on Fire, where we interview practicing professionals in the area of science, technology, engineering, and math to help guide students interested in STEM careers. If you like what you hear in this podcast, I ask that you please share it with a friend. Now let's get fired up with our guest, John, and I hope our chat will help ignite your passion towards a STEM career. John Pratt has a master's degree in electrical and computer engineering from the University of Colorado Boulder and has worked at Qualcomm in the past and is currently a robotics embedded software engineer at Canvas Technology in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome to the show, John. Take a moment to fill in any gaps and share a bit of your personal life. Thanks, Jeff. I uh, moved to Colorado in uh, 2000 and liked it so much that I stayed. I've been lucky enough to find uh, jobs in the area that are uh, in my skill set and interest and expertise and and enjoyed staying here an awful lot. So uh, uh, thanks for having me. So let's delve right in. So you're an embedded software engineer, but your degree is in electrical and computer engineering. So for somebody not familiar with the job opportunities, could you give some examples of career choices for our folks out there? The uh, electrical and computer engineering degree is sort of a hybrid between the hardware side of electrical and the software side of computer science. Um, and that opens up a wide range of applications and possibilities. Um, everything from cell phones, uh, computer parts like hard drives and uh, memory controllers, cable boxes, uh, smart devices like the Amazon Echo or other uh, smart appliances you find around. Um, but then lots of other things that you don't normally associate with being smart or being uh, or interacting with things like building sensors that tell you where uh, you know strain on a building or traffic lights and all sorts of other stuff that's just sort of that's a, ubiquitous around the area. And did you have to do anything specific in college to form kind of the embedded software aspect that you're doing right now? The curriculum uh, emphasized more low-level software, which is sort of the embedded software piece that I uh, am working on. Um, I was uh, an adjunct instructor at CU for a little while as well and worked in the embedded systems program, which is a specifically designed set of curriculum that they uh, created just for working on these low-level devices. Yeah, so for STEM Nation out there, uh, John, if you could explain a little bit between what an embedded software engineer might do versus a I'll say an application software engineer or somebody that's not doing embedded. How would you explain that? Absolutely. Uh, So embedded systems, I think of as computers without a screen. They are uh, processors that control devices, that control hardware. Um, That can be a variety of different things, um, cameras uh, or other uh, things that are pulling data in from the outside world. But it can also be uh, stuff that is, you know, just sort of quietly shuttling data around like your network switch. And in an embedded system, so like when I fire up my computer and Windows fires up or if I've got a, a Mac, my, my iOS fires up. And sometimes it can take, you know, a minute. Sometimes it's doing an update and it can take, you know, 30 minutes. In an embedded system, do you have to be careful on how you write your software or can you just write it however you want? There's lots of constraints um, for embedded systems that I, I think actually makes it a lot more fun and a lot more challenging. Um, there's there's usually a constraint on how much space you have on the embedded system. Uh, and so it is very uh, 
most embedded system developers have to be very careful to not add too much code, to not add too much functionality, and to be very uh, thrifty with the memory and with the space that they use when they implement it. Um, in your normal computer, you, know, you can bring in large volumes of data and you can crunch on them in your spreadsheet or in your word processing or wherever else. Um, in an embedded system, you have you know a tenth or a hundredth the resources that your PC does. And that means that your approach to programming, it has to be um, you know, very thrifty with everything from memory to CPU cycles to the, the non-volatile storage, the stuff that is still around after you turn the power off. Yeah, and, and John, the reason I bring that up is First Stem Nation, because I've talked to some other computer engineers, and there's the software aspect when you go through the curriculum in college. And some of it is high-level you know, SQL or SQL software and just high-level Java programming. And a lot of the engineers really don't like that. Some do, some don't. Um, the ones that don't, some of them get, they'll get uh, disgruntled about the program, um, and they think that's what it is. But there is the aspect of the embedded software where you actually have to do some, I'll say, real engineering about thinking about how you're going to write that software. So it does fit into the memory like John is talking about. So thanks for that overview. Appreciate it. And now, John, let's dig in specifically to your area of expertise. I uh, focus primarily on uh, either signal processing or image processing on embedded systems. The uh, Image processing and the signal processing are sort of like specific tasks that the embedded system would have to do. Uh, largely complex mathematic operations on incoming data sets. Um, if you think of how a uh, signal comes in off of an antenna, um, it's going to be a whole bunch of little discrete samples as the uh, data flows in over time. And then you have to perform some processing on it to turn that into... Uh, in the case of the cell phone one I was working on before, into actual data bits that come up to the application and you know allow you to download your cat picture. Um, and you know the there's a startling amount of mathematics that goes into making sure that your video streams properly. Um, but the same and then the same kind of a uh, space on the image processing side. So you'll get a image off of a sensor and then you have to work out, interesting pieces in the image and and frame to frame translation so you can tell what's happened between two images and that kind of stuff and so that's really my focus is taking these little embedded devices that are resource constrained and using them to perform uh, heavy number crunching in order to make you know really impressive end results happen for the user so when you talk about a sensor um, on a camera uh, video stream, is essentially that essentially like a camera where you're taking snapshot after snapshot of so if you're running at let's say 60 frames per second you're getting a an image every uh 60 times per second and then you have to process that image i'll say in real time in an embedded software environment and then you're looking for differences from each image uh as they come in Yes, and the uh, and the, and then there's another factor of two, another factor of two, because we actually get two cameras. You know, at sixty is a little aggressive. I don't know if we make sixty frames a second right now, but we we do get twenty to thirty frames a second coming in, um, and they're coming in off of a left and right stereo pair. And what that really allows you to do is it's sort of the same way your your eyes work. 
uh, your the difference between you know the minor differences between two points in the left image to the right image gives you an idea of distance, um, and so you can actually with a little bit of uh, calibration of the sensor and some of uh, the placement of the two cameras, you can actually create depth from two images uh, in no, uh, if they come from sensors in known configurations. And that allows us to take a pair of stereo cameras in the front uh, of our robot and a pair of stereo cameras in the back of our robot and use that to reconstruct a, a full three-dimensional depth, of, uh, depth view of the world around us. So I guess that's how robots can see, I would imagine. Yeah, it's, and it's it's very analogous to the way uh, human vision processing works um, in that it has, you know, sort of this uh, constant stream of depth information coming in and, and without uh, consciously processing it, when you look at the wall, you know that that's about three feet away. Um, and our, uh, our, our robot sensor has to very, very actively process it, but it's able to determine that that little point on the wall is about three feet away and the point right next to it is about three feet feet away, and then it creates this sort of point cloud of uh, depth and distance. So your day sounds like you're writing some software, you're, maybe you're figuring out some some math. What would a typical day look like for you? My, my typical day, I, I work largely uh, on a computer, either in, a la- in the lab or at my desk. Um, because I'm working in an embedded system, I spend a lot of my time connected to the hardware. Um, so I am either in the lab with something taken apart or on a bench, having completely disassembled the robot and taken part of its guts out onto the bench, um, and then connecting that to my computer so that I can actually peek into the embedded system and see what's happening and see what is broken or what I'm trying to add and why it's not working. And that, and then I switch back and forth between that, and then I'll go back and, and have some software that I'll write on my uh, PC that you know lives inside of a test bench during early development. And so I'll do some uh, primarily desk work and then take my laptop over to the lab and do some connected to the hardware. And I really like being able to you know see and touch hardware and, and be able to experience the end result very uh, in a very real and meaningful and direct way. So what is one thing that really has you fired up about robotics or embedded software engineering and where do you see it headed? Robotics is a really exciting field to be in. Um, the uh, space is exploding. A lot of it has been in the last th- three to five years. There's been some substantial advancements in the technology and the, what's possible, um, as well as what's available for processing resources. So if you look 10 years ago, uh, you wouldn't have been able to do the level of computation that we do now on a regular basis for these for these robots. And the net result is that it's it's taking over a lot of the onerous tasks um, in manufacturing, in, uh, in other industries, um, in warehouses and other places. It's the stuff that you typically look at and say, oh, God, I just hate doing this over and over and over again. That's a perfect candidate now for robotics to step in and remove that and and free up your time to go do the interesting stuff. Are you adding like artificial intelligence or machine learning to your robots? We do have some of that. I think that's one of the areas that we are most actively expanding. Um, and that's another area that's had enormous growth. And really the combination of the two, the better machine vision is what they typically refer to it as processing algorithms. And the mapping and the localization and being able to know where the robot is in space 
and then add on to that these compute these machine learning algorithms that are able to identify a chair and a table and a forklift and a car and a person and when what it creates is this full featured representation of the world i know where i am on my map i know how far away all the walls around me are and i know that that thing in front of me is a person uh, it makes for a really exciting end result where you you really pulled all the pieces together Hey, we're going to change gears here a little bit, John. We're going to move into an aha moment you've had. Can you take us to a moment in time of an incredible aha moment you've had at work or your personal life and tell us a story and how you turn that aha moment into success? I did. And it's actually, it was when I was first starting out in my uh, electrical engineering career. Uh, I had a PlayStation that wasn't working and I took it apart. And it wasn't the first thing I'd taken apart, but it was the, the moment was when I realized that this device had been built by people like me. And it was not this magical black box that provided me with amazing video games. I disassembled it and I looked into it and I started poking around and I understood what was going on a little bit. I said, oh, well, if this is built by somebody like me, then somebody like me can change it or improve it or fix it. And in this case, it was fix it because the thing had stopped, you know, spinning discs and there was a, it was starting to overheat and some other things. And I made some tweaks and I wired some things back up and I put it back together and it started working. I was like, okay, this is, this is the area I want to be in. I love taking these things apart, making changes, getting them back running again, understanding how they work. Uh, that was really the moment where going into college, I thought I really liked, uh, audio processing. I thought I was, I really liked sound engineering and some other stuff. But when I took apart the PlayStation and put it back together, I was, no, I really like taking apart electronics. I really like building and um, getting involved with embedded systems. And so that was what really kind of set my career path direction from then on. And did you do that in college? So did you start out as an electrical engineer or as like an audio engineer? I started out as an electrical engineer with a hardware focus for the audio stuff. So I was, I started in, I was probably sophomore year, maybe uh, end of my freshman year when I, when I took apart the PlayStation, but I, I was sure going in and I wanted to do, you know, tube amps and uh, all, all sorts of other audio uh, analog proce processing. Um, but then once I realized that it was a lot more fun to take apart a PlayStation, I, I decided that maybe I needed to rethink that. Um, and, and now I'm one of those guys. Now I'm one of the people that help build and design uh, embedded systems. And uh, I find it very rewarding. And I'll say, STEM Nation, if you head down, I'll say, the straight electrical route, you may or may not have C programming or programming in the curriculum. And I would recommend taking that as an elective because even if you're a hardcore electrical engineer doing electronic design, there more than likely is going to be a processor or something to communicate with it. And that's where you're going to want that software background, at least the knowledge of how to do that at, at any rate to maybe even just test your hardware, maybe not writing the applications for it, but make sure you get some software background in college. And speaking of college, John, we're going to transition here. If you could go back to when you were 18 heading off to college, what are some things that you wish you knew back then or even knew back then that would help our STEMers launch into college successfully? Yeah, and this one is, I I think it's a really valuable one, but it's it's a little tough to do. And then just find the time to experiment and work and play in your field. 
Um, and and what I'm trying to go where I'm trying to go with that is you know find the the robotics competitions or the or build a smart doorbell or find something uh, that is interesting and exciting to you in your field and do it as a side project. And what that really does uh, is it puts the theory into a real direct application. Oh, I have to learn this because it will help make this better. Oh. Or the uh, concepts we were learning last year directly apply to this other I, this other project that I just started. Uh, I found that it really helps my learning to have a you know a relevance and immediacy to the topics and the material that I'm covering. And so, if I had spent a little bit more time doing related side projects or related outside competitions, I think I would have been a lot more, I would have been able to absorb the material that was being, uh, that was coming from the classes and from my instru- instructors and the curriculum a lot better. Was that during college or during high school? That was, uh, I, that was primarily during college that I, that I was looking for some of those, but I know a lot of those are in co- are in high school as well. Uh, the, the examples that I all, that I've locked onto are all a lot more like senior year college kind of things of, you know, my linear algebra isn't nearly as strong as it could have been if I had understood what it meant when we were doing it um, beyond like the, the uh, abstract math theory portions of it. It really has direct implications on images, on cell phone signals, on whatever. And so if I had spent a little bit of time with image processing, the linear algebra wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been so obscure. All right. And what do you what would you recommend for high school students classes to take? You know, there's a standard calculus and the physics. Is there any other classes that you'd recommend as a high school student that they should be taking before they get into college? Uh, I think you've hit on the programming piece. Uh, I would recommend that even starting in high school. I think that there are lots of opportunities to pick up programming languages and programming experience and you can do really really well with uh, uh, just a little bit of programming knowledge in almost any discipline. And whether that's a mechanical engineer learning to learning some Python to automate the uh, stress testing or uh, electrical engineer having some board checkout software or anything like that, I think being able to automate the things that are tedious about your homework or about your uh, class schedule or whatever else you know, with a little bit of software background can really make your life easy. Yeah, for STEM Nation, it doesn't matter what your STEM degree is. Uh, John mentioned Python. Python is a very popular language. Even as a mechanical engineer, an actuary, uh, biologist, there's going to be things that are mundane that take a look at Python. So if you're in high school, go Google Python, take a look at it. It's free. You can just start using it. And if you're thinking of going kind of an embedded route like John has with the software, there's kits out there called Arduino that are actually fairly inexpensive. Um, that have uh, they have instructions on how to do different projects. You can actually go buy a project. You can go buy a kit, and it'll get you going and writing some software very easily and interacting with the hardware. And it's it's pretty cool and it's fun and it's easy to use. And there's also lots of examples online as well. So if you find uh, the first project is is a lot of fun, but you really want to go make something to automatically control your uh, dog door. Uh, you can probably find an example project online and go build one. Um, there's lots and lots of resources for the the maker movement that has really taken off. 
Absolutely. John, now let's turn our attention onto what skills or attributes you think STEMers need to be successful as they transition from college into their careers. There are two that really stand out. The first is build something for the long term. In college, it's very easy to you know, finish your two-week project and throw it away and never look at it again. Uh, and then move, you're on to the next thing. You're off to the next application. You're off to the next lab. That doesn't really work in the real world, in the professional world. The code that you wrote this week, you're going to see again three months, six months, two years from now. And so writing something that is designed to be easy to support, that you won't have to remember three weeks from now exactly what you were thinking when you wrote it, uh, that has good test cases, that has some examples and documentation. A lot of that stuff is the stuff that when we are in college, we tend to gloss over or skip as, you know, check the box work. Um, but it really makes a big difference in how easy it is to do your job later. Um, and everybody knows it. So they'll actually sort of look, look at your work product as not being as good if you haven't adopted techniques that allow it to be a lot easier to maintain. The other one that is a little bit of a, a stretch for a lot of people coming out of college is that Rarely do I work in just a team of embedded software engineers um, in, in industry. Uh, there's hardware guys, there's mechanical guys, there's electrical design guys, there's web uh, backend uh, developers. And, and being able to work hand in hand with a variety of different skill sets and technology areas and everything else can make your life a lot easier too. Um, and so understanding a little bit about mechanical and a little, have a little bit of curiosity about the electrical piece or the web piece or other things like that makes it a lot easier to communicate with other teams and also uh, helps to pull you out of some of the jargon that you can get into in your area of specialty or expertise. Yeah, you got to have somewhat of a multidisciplinary background uh, to be successful out there. So thanks for that, John. And we're going to take a quick a uh, break to thank our sponsor, Audible, who is offering a free audiobook. You can head over to stemonfirebook.com. That's stemonfirebook.com to get your free audiobook. And now, John, are you ready for the lightning round? Let's do it. All right. Hey, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Best advice I ever received was you are defined as much by the things you don't do as the things that you do. And that, to me, was a message to not chase everything all of the time. I'm, I'm really interested and excited about lots of stuff um, that I can't explore all of it and uh, passing on some of them so that I can explore the stuff that was really exciting to me uh, made a big difference in how well I was able to uh, you know, proceed down a career path. Yeah. If you chase two rabbits, you will catch neither of them. What's a personal habit that contributes to your success? Constantly learning and reinventing myself. And what's your favorite internet resource or phone app and why? I'm a tech geek and unabashed and unashamed tech geek. I love just reading through CNET and they have great reviews and they have all the cool new toys and uh, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like candy. And what is one book you recommend and why? I recently read America the Ingenious. Uh, it's good storytelling, a little bite-sized so you can read them through, but it's actually really interesting to see how some of the everyday things uh, around you came about. And John, as we wrap up here, can you share a parting piece of guidance for STEM Nation, and then we'll say goodbye. The best advice I can give is to find the areas and the things that interest you, uh, that you're drawn to. 
if you find these, your work really just feels like play and a hobby. And you're so into something that you just can't put it down. And that's that's a really rewarding way to spend your day. Um, I'm lucky enough to be in an area in a field that I don't quit whenever the bell rings. Like I'm done and I go home and I play. And I do either the things I was doing at work or I have something very similar that I'm doing for myself. And I just really enjoy it an awful lot. Um, I think that's something something to strive for. And I think that's something that a lot of people can find. Awesome, John. And with that, we will say goodbye. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today with John. Head on over to stemonfire.com, subscribe to the email list to keep up the latest happenings, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast player. And again, if you are getting value from this podcast, please share it with a friend. We will be taking next week off for Christmas and start the new year with Kevin, who went from engineering to a turnaround CEO and author of the book Never Boss. Until next time, I hope this chat has helped ignite your passion towards a STEM career.